this week's Property Matters on Dublin South FM, the show that brings global trends to an Irish audience. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon. Due to ongoing COVID-19 restrictions, we are still recording remotely, so apologies for any poor sound quality. Um, so first up, I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Patrick Folan, director of I Am Sold and regular guest on the show. Although, Patrick, it has been a while since we've spoken last and things have changed a lot since we've spoken last. It has indeed, it has indeed. I think the last time I was due to come to, to Dublin to meet you, but that, those days are gone now. So we're, yeah. uh, we're, we're definitely in a, in, a different, in a different time zone than, than the last time we spoke. But look, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're in business, we're, we're busy, thankfully, right now, and uh, just trying to get our heads around what the future holds, I suppose. Yeah, do you know, th- these, are, these are such interesting times. Um, over the past four months, we've endeavoured to keep the show on the road. Um, and in fact, if anything, it's actually kind of pushed us to innovate our own recording a little bit more. So like, for example, last week, I was joined for the, for the same interview by somebody uh, from founders of an Irish prop tech startup uh, that are based in Dublin and Galway. But the callers were coming in from uh, Berlin and Warsaw and I was recording from Wicklow. So, you know, it's great that we've actually been able to do this as opposed to all trying to gather in a Dublin studio. So in some ways it has really opened up things. And I think that really translates into the property market as well. But um, I'd, 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And I suppose on that point, I think we've all embraced technology a little bit more. We're, we're a company who would be kind of that way inclined anyways, but your Zoom calls, your, you know, your, your, your online meetings, they're, 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 they're really part of the business now, whereas maybe six months ago they weren't. So I think we've all changed and, 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 and that hopefully would be good for the business in the long run as well. Yeah. Patrick, as a director of I Am Sold, most people will be familiar with I Am Sold as one of the nationwide auction houses. So actually, you were very much um, ahead in terms of the trends for online auctions. So, I mean, you were among the first in Ireland offering online only auctions. And from that point of view, you've probably dealt with a lot of the teething issues that maybe some traditional auctioneers and estate agencies have been trying to navigate over the past number of months. Um, so when when was your first online auction? Yeah, so so yeah, as you say, we're we're, we're ahead of the curve. About about eight years ago, we had the first online auction. So I suppose we're 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 well ahead of the curve in terms in terms of that side of things. Now I suppose we have done a lot of changes to the actual system over the years. So yeah, we we've had to tweak and had to had to improve it. I suppose as time as time went along. But um, in terms of our our initial startup was in 2012, 2013. So, you know, I suppose we're, we're kind of eight years in now to, to online auctions. We have been running online auctions, online only auctions without the public facility um, on a monthly basis anyways. And then the public auctions, which we had been running, have now gone into postponement and uh, we're waiting to, to start them again. But in fairness, we, we, we don't need to. It's a, it's a nice thing to be running public auctions, but we were already well set up to, and we're lucky enough in that sense, this was that our business model allowed us to work from home, which was a big one over the last few months. Um, obviously, offices were closed um, and our phone systems, our, our, our online systems all allowed us to work remotely as well. So we've been actually 
reasonably busy during lockdown. We, we, the staff are all working full time, and uh, and we've been able to do quite a number of sales even within lockdown. So I suppose that was a that was a positive for us as well. Absolutely, Patrick. Is it fair to call I am sold almost like an outsourced auction department for some traditional agents nationwide? Yeah. Yeah, it, it would be. So we work with about 300 auctioneers now in Ireland, and we work with about 1,200 in the UK as well. So we're, we're kind of, I suppose, all over Ireland and, and, and Northern Ireland as well. And absolutely, we, we provide an auction solution to existing auctioneers. We work very closely with them. We're not just a, here's an IT platform, go ahead and, and figure it out and use it. We're very much auctioneers in our own right as well. So we partner, if you like, with the auctioneers to take on the auction properties to, I suppose, value them correctly for reserves for auction and, and work with interested parties. So we, we would have a team that work with the buyers to, I suppose, help them through the process as well, because it is something that's new and it's, it's, it's a bit different. And it's, you know, maybe in the last years come to the fore a bit more, but people still are, are maybe a little wary of it. You know, how does it work? How, what do I need to do? So there is a lot of work that goes on in the background to make sure that both vendors and buyers of properties are comfortable and know what they're doing or what they need to do maybe before bidding on an online auction as well. Yeah, that actually brings up a great point and one that we've touched on here a couple of times over the past few months on the show. You know, we've we've been consistent uh, pr- supporters and proponents of PropTech and all sorts of technology to, to move all elements of the property process online. But one of the missing components really was that culture change. So in theory, everything could be done online, but we know that um, buyers weren't there yet, uh, you know, it, it, and the exception maybe are the investors who would have routinely been um, looking at properties through online auctions um, like yourselves. So in a way, I, I wonder, are you kind of preaching to the choir? Are your audience, the, your regular buyers and investors, they're people who have been used to maybe not viewing properties and buying properties based on the digital assets shown on your platform you know is that something is that something that maybe is standing to you now that you people who don't necessarily need to view the properties yeah, well, well okay it's twofold we still deal with a lot of your investors and your your cash buyers who know what they're doing if you like and have been through the the, the, the mill with different types of purchases in the past and i suppose yes quite often Okay, during lockdown they were they were buying without seeing the properties yet, but but generally they would like to see the properties. They would say even that cohort of people would like to step on the floorboards, would like to smell the smell the air around it that there's no damp, would like to go out into the garden if there's a garden, and and would like to get a sense of the property. Albeit during lockdown, we actually sold quite a number of lower end properties with lots and lots of interest. I must say, um, holiday homes, um, cottages, even even maybe smaller investments um, without viewings, and, and they went quite well, in fact. Um, so we have had appetite for properties without viewing. But I, I will say. Uh, more than half of our buyers now are mortgage buyers, um, so we're not we're no longer in the space where we're dealing with just cash buyers and investors. So a big cohort of our buyers are now um, family buyers looking for a nice home, um, and I suppose we work through the process of buying through online auction with them more. So I suppose there's probably more more of a, a sort of hand holding effort to kind of explain the process of what you need to do before bidding. And if we said to a a residential buyer, they're a first-time buyer, and they they don't, you know, they haven't bought a property before. Go away there and bid on an online auction. They would walk away and probably run a mile. Whereby our, I suppose, if you like, our efforts in the sale are to explain to them: look, it's not rocket science. What you need to do here, 
this is, there's a private vendor. It's not a bank sale. Most of our sales are private. There's a private vendor here. They will do business at the 200,000. Here's what you need to do to you know, get your bank value out to the property, get your surveyor out to the property. We have all the legal pack ready. If you have a solicitor, we can send it over to the solicitor straight away and kind of work through them, the process. There's really only three or four things they need to do in order to get them satisfied that the bank will lend, number one, get their loan offer in and that their solicitor is happy with the title. So really there is a, a big portion of our workload is probably dealing with the, the, the buyers and helping them through the process and hence we can deal with maybe a, a bigger portfolio of, of property types. Uh, your family homes have come into our auctions a lot more in the last few years and that's something we'd like to, to continue with. Yeah, but I'm I'm really surprised to hear you say that uh, more than half are mortgage buyers because the mortgage mortgage companies and the, more, the lenders in Ireland are still really sluggish in terms of uh, supporting home buyers at auction process. So you know what we've seen in the past was that um, you know investors who were willing to bid at auction take a chance they were able to access finance, but they also kind of had a plan B if. Um, the mortgage didn't come through, whereas for home buyers and first time buyers particularly, you know, that's something that the banks, they, they didn't have a great process in place for supporting buyers through this. So has that changed in terms of the main lenders? So it has and it hasn't. And I must preface that by saying a lot of these um, first time buyers or, or, or just general mortgage buyers that we deal with, um, if it's a private sale, and it's going to auction, say, for instance, we've our next Leinster auction next week, next Thursday. There's been quite a number of deals done, and even this week there'll be quite a number of deals done before auction as well. So quite often, if there's if there's a buyer there at the right money and there's a private vendor and they say, look, I'll take the 200000 if you can come in with your definite bid beforehand, it gives the buyer a bit of comfort to say, okay, there's a deal here to be done and maybe puts a bit of uh, time constraints on them. Will the bank then play ball in terms of get, do, getting your, your ducks in a row? They will. You do need to maybe emphasize the, the timing of it and you would need about two to three weeks one week isn't enough you would probably yeah. need ideally about three weeks to go through that process but yeah absolutely the banks will if they're aware of a i suppose a deadline they will they will help the buyer and, and try to expedite it i suppose but it's still a it's still a time consuming process but it can be done providing the the solicitor and the surveyor and the value are all aware that look there is a there is a deadline here and we need to we need to get this moving quite quickly yeah you know i think that's a message we really need to get out to uh, house hunters and particularly to first time buyers because um, I, I've seen it myself um, from over the past decade and a half that buyers automatically switch off. First time buyers, a lot of them automatically switch off if they see it's a property that's going for auction, irrespective of whether it's an in-person or online auction. It's just not something they're comfortable with. It's not something they're educated on. And um, I think that they maybe aren't aware that the auction process has changed so much over the past decade here in Ireland as well. So it's definitely kind of a, a communication issue that we need to we need for buyers to see that this is just another route to purchasing property and that it is absolutely accessible to them. And, you know, there, there's a number of things like solicitors and mortgage lenders need to play their part. It can't all be just the auctioneers as well. Um, so the, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's an important it, it, one. It, it, it's everyone pulling together, I suppose, to, to make things happen faster. Our, our sales are going through after about six weeks, whereas private treaty is taking, you know, we're between four to six weeks, depending on the property. Yeah. But on average, ones will push a bit longer. So it's it's been six weeks for the last probably couple of years. So that's 
a hell of a lot faster than your six months plus sometimes that uh, that private treaty is taking. And that is a problem, and that's maybe one of the reasons why I think buyers and vendors, it doesn't suit anyone to wait six to nine months to get their house closed um, and, to, and to get moving into a house. So um, it's the process is definitely beneficial from that end if you can make it work for you. Yeah, and look, um, conveyancing, sluggish conveyancing in Ireland and, and really disproportionate conveyancing delays and the perhaps law society's resistance to embrace technology that already exists exists you know that's yeah. that's been clearly identified as a problem and it's something that actually IPAV are actively working on now with their smart contracts so actually there's there's a huge push now whether it's for auction or traditional sales for um the conveyancing process to be tidied up smartened up and um increasingly automated which is what we want to see so we know that that's something that's happening which would be a benefit to everybody and um, but Patrick just I, I suppose really I'd love to get a sense because you're dealing with the state agents right across the country you know what kind yep. of sense are you getting from them but also from their vendor clients you know are we starting to see more secondhand properties coming on the on the market and to auction or are vendors a little bit nervous at the moment? Yeah, well, there's definitely nerves out there. There's no, there's no doubt about that. I mean, there's obviously we're running into an uncertain period. But I suppose from our experience since we have began, I suppose, viewings and, and fully back in the market again over the last few weeks, it's extremely, extremely busy right now. And, and there is a lot of pent-up demand. And I think most auctioneers are, are finding that the demand for properties is extremely high. So from that end, that's very positive. Obviously, we don't know how long that'll last, but right now it's very, very good. Vendors then, I suppose there definitely is nerviness and there definitely is um, a lot of questions. Is it the right time? Should I come to the market? What? Where is the market going to go later in the year? And, and I suppose nobody knows, but there, there's probably two schools of thought right now as to, as to where the market is going. One is there's huge appetite. The stock levels are low. You can probably, you know, get quite a good result on your property right now. Um, will COVID-19 counterbalance that and, and will it pull the prices down later in the year? We, we don't know, but there is a school of thought to say that the demand is so high, the, sh- the shortage will probably be there for the rest of the year, we, we, we think. So I think it's probably there's going to be a reasonably good year in it. Um, and that's my, my, my sense of it that, OK, we may, we may go through some difficulties, but it's not going to be a, a terrible uh, back end of the year um, that maybe some people are predicting. Um, and then I suppose the other school of thought is we might see a sharp enough fall towards the back end of the year, but a very short and sharp fall. The V, the V shape, I suppose, as, as, as we've heard, maybe on yeah. certain um, certain predictions. See, we 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 talk a lot about supply and demand, obviously as being the driving forces there in the market. But what we're dealing with um, in the aftermath of the pandemic are people who have had their um, income. They've had changes to their income, albeit on a temporary basis, and the banks didn't show the flexibility that we needed. Now, I saw in the Sunday papers just this uh, the weekend gone that, you know, the banks have committed to taking a more flexible approach. So where people, their their um, income levels have changed as a result of COVID-19, but on a temporary basis that they're going to be more flexible. But we know that that's definitely going to cause a problem going forward, that there will be people who in February had no problem um, securing a mortgage that by July and, and August they might actually have a problem. Now, So that demand still exists, but the, the people who demand homes may not be able to secure a mortgage and that's going to be a problem. 
Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And I think it's probably, if not the most crucial point, uh, it's up there um, that the bank lending, obviously, the, the the demand will be there. I feel if the if the banks don't punish people unduly, I suppose for short-term problem, which. I suppose most of the country was affected by. Um, so I, I think our own experience has been reasonably good with the banks that um, people who have been affected by COVID-19 and were buying maybe through us, we haven't had any sales where there's been a problem. Even if, it, I should say, they're looking for a couple of months back on their normal wage. Um, but once that happens, that, that seems to be our experience right now. Um, okay. Now, obviously, market reports are saying, you know, so certain banks were maybe looking at certain different um, approaches to it. But I think the banks have to play ball because, yeah, uh, I, think, I think from a property perspective, um, it would be a big problem if there was a cohort or a large cohort of people who couldn't buy for the next six months or a year. And uh, I don't think the banks want that either. I don't think it's in the bank's interest. They need to be prudent. They can't be foolish. But if it's a short-term problem and the problem is then resolved, I think the bank needs to need to need to deal with that fairly. Yeah, no, and that and that's that's kind of the crux of the matter there. And I expect that that's what that's what the approach um, the banks will take. But in terms of um, the past four months, did you have to cancel any auctions, or did you go ahead with all planned auctions? We went ahead with all planned auction dates, but some of the public auctions turned into online auctions, uh, which which is what we're doing at the minute, I suppose. So the auction um, this week on Thursday would have been, uh, so we have one last week this week and uh, next week, and they were all due to be public auctions, which uh, they're now all online auctions. But that's fine. It's it's still the same process, just people have to bid online as opposed to physically attending a, okay. a, a public auction room. And in terms of numbers, um, did you have any vendors withdraw from uh, withdraw their properties, you know, that had previously scheduled the properties for sale? We definitely have had, you know, even in and any time, there may be a little bit of that, but it hasn't been, it hasn't been huge numbers. I would say we have at any one time around 200 properties on the books. And now I don't have the exact figure, but I'd say it's single digits in um, terms of people who have actually withdrawn. Now, apologies, Patrick, the line broke there for a, for a moment. So could I just ask you to repeat there um, in terms of, vendors that they that have any vendors withdrawn from auction over that time? I can, Carol. Yeah, I, I was just saying it's been very limited. There'll always be an element of situation changes that COVID-19 or not will, will, will happen. So it hasn't been unusually high, I would say. Of the 200 properties we might be selling at one time, I would say it's less than, less than it's single digits. It's, it's less than 10 that have uh, maybe made changes to their circumstances and, and can no longer move for some reason. Okay. And in terms of, um, because I know that these are probably stats that you would track, um, generally speaking, do you know the average that uh, properties going through I am sold, do they exceed their their uh, guide or reserve price or their advised minimum value? Do they exceed that on a routine basis? It, it does. The, the average tends to be somewhere between 10 and 15%. I think last year was 12%. Uh, this year would probably actually uh, uh, right now a little higher. Um, there's actually been some really strong results, well above reserve. Even in the last, even last week, certain properties that had sold for double the reserve or or twenty percent above reserve, you know, it's been quite strong. Particularly at the lower end of the market, there's there's a big jump on on reserve and there's huge appetite for for properties. Uh, I think we had one in in the Connacht auction last week that went in at thirty thousand approximately and it sold for over eighty. 
um, and then wow. had a, a huge volume of interest. And in fairness, a really strong price. Um, it was a needed complete refurbishment, a, a kind of a rural, a rural cottage, um, and wouldn't have expected that result. Um, but nonetheless, when the volume of inquiries came in, uh, so there's been some really strong results at the lower end. There was another property in just outside of Galway City that went in at 230, uh, 230 sold at 285, so again, nicely above reserve. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose there, there's, there's good appetite. There's good appetite for all residential stuff, I would say. And I know we sold a, a house with a development site in Dundrum a couple of weeks ago, and that made 700,000. And that was a good, you know, I suppose that was a, a development spin, if you like, that the value was in the development, not the house as such. And uh, there was good appetite in, in, in that one. So it seems to be, seems to be a lot of confidence right there in the market. And uh, hopefully that'll, that'll continue. That's really interesting because I would have expected that even where properties sell, that maybe um, it wouldn't have exceeded the, the guide price as much as, as previously so expected. So that's an interesting one. Um, now, when you talk about if, when you talk about interest in rural properties, that ties in very well with not just Irish trends that we're seeing over the past month, but also UK trends that people seem to be looking for um, looking for properties outside the city. Um, you know, whether it's looking for more more space in terms of houses or more green space in terms of gardens or greater uh, property size, that they seem to be looking to rural locations. And that hasn't been a feature of the property market so much in, in the past decade. So that's an interesting trend that would definitely uh, cater to a lot of the properties that you have listed through I Am Sold. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there, there does seem to be a... A lot of buyers in the market looking for a move. So some of them are looking for residential moves. Some of them are looking for commercial as well. There's a bit of that happening. Guys, whether it be downsizing or, or, or moving location for commercial. So there is quite a bit of movement in the market at the minute. I suppose once COVID-19 hit, I suppose, and people were at home, I think there was a realization that maybe working from home more often is an option, number one, but I need to be more comfortable or I need an office space or I need, you know, I, I can maybe move out of the city, uh, work from home two days a week or three days a week and um, and have a bigger a bigger property. So there definitely is a feel and, and a sentiment in the market that the rural properties and that maybe the the properties that were not considered um, suitable maybe six months ago um, are now being seriously looked at because there's huge value once you go out of the the, the, the main drags I suppose and the, and the main the main uh, suburbs of cities the value increases hugely I suppose um, so you can get your five bedroom detached house for probably the same price as a as a three bedroom terrace in Dublin you know if you if you go out as far as your maybe your your Wexfords or your your Louts or your you know West Meats you know that 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 side of the the Dublin I suppose so there is huge value to be got if someone is willing to to move out and I think more people are now yeah well certainly um the stats not again not just in Ireland but in the UK seem to seem to indicate that's a growing trend. So it's one that we'll definitely watch with interest. Um, Patrick, before we let you go, you might just direct people where they can go to find information about the properties that are listed for your Leinster auction this Thursday. Yeah, well, we, we have the main site, IamSold.ie, which has all the properties across Ireland. But if someone wants specifically the Leinster um, properties, then they can go to LeinsterPropertyAuction.ie. Super. Best of luck to the team there for Thursday. We leave it there for now. Our thanks again to Patrick Foley, Director at I Am Sold. We'll take a quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9. 
Dublin South FM. And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iProperty Radio or email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. I'm delighted to be joined over the phone now by Peter Murphy, co-founder of Ziggy Tech. Peter, you're very welcome to the show. Um, thank you for joining us today. And thank you, Carol. Um, Peter, Ziggy Tech, that's spelled Z-I-G-G-Y-T-E-C. Uh, you featured prominently in some of the Irish business papers in recent times. Tell us about Ziggy Tech. So Ziggy Tech, um, Ziggy Tech, myself and my co-founder, Kira Murphy, who is um, no relation of mine. Um, we, we met uh, quite a number of years ago when I was involved with ESB. I worked for ESB for 29 years and um, I was in head of trading in their energy trading. And I got involved with a, a professor using algorithms to trade energy stocks. And Kieran was using the same professor, using those algorithms to trade um, to trade investment stocks. And that's how we go. It was through that co- that, that common, common contact we got to meet each other. Um, uh, and about two years ago, we decided to leave our various jobs to set up Ziggy Tech because we could see that within the property sector, uh, the need for sustainability and sustainability data was crucially important. And property managers were really struggling to get on top of their sustainability data. And that's how we founded Ziggy Tech. Yeah, look, you're absolutely right in identifying a trend there. It's a need that we've been talking about over the past decade, but I just don't know. There are lots of piecemeal approaches to it. So there are lots of um, elements of technology that deal with different aspects of it. So yours is an end-to-end solution for um, building on portfolio owners and operators. So you might just explain um, exactly how the tool works. So, yes, so we're very much focused in the commercial sector for portfolio owners and portfolio managers. And the challenge they face if they have a portfolio of 100 properties is how to know how much energy has been consumed in those 100 properties. And most of our clients would have their buildings registered for the likes of Leeds, Breen, Gresby, and things like that. And one of the key requirements of those uh, certifications is obviously to record all their energy usage. And to record your energy usage is, it's a mammoth task. Um, Like even if you think domestically, do you know what the meter registration number of your electricity and gas meter is at home? And do you know how much you use each month? Possibly you don't, Carol, do you? I definitely don't. And um, raising a, well, she's not a teenager anymore. She's gone beyond that. But, you know, when there's kids in the house as well, you know, it's definitely something that we probably should be tracking much better, but don't. Yeah. And how would you track it? You'd, it'd be, it's all about logging onto various portals and pulling down PDF copies of your bills, et cetera, et cetera. And what you'll find invariably is that there'll be estimates, not actually real readings. They tend to take the readings maybe four times a year. So you look at a portfolio manager who has 100 buildings and in each building mm-hmm. they might have 10 to 20 meters in it. it. It's just a huge, enormous task, paper-based task and Obviously, because it's paper-based, it's hugely prone to error. So where we came in to do, we, we, we adopted the Internet of Things. Um, we have small devices, um, which are radio communication, which we put on top of the existing meters in the building. And they transmit the meter reading every hour up into the cloud. And we gather all that data together for your portfolio um, and summarize it and 
you can log on to our portal and see which building is using what, how much they're using. We've online carbon calculators, so you know minute by minute how much carbon has been consumed by the building. Okay. And um, you how do you how do you set a baseline? So we're we're new in the game, so we're two years out and we're starting to establish the baselines at the moment and it was actually all going very well up to March and then all of a sudden all the buildings commercial uh, their consumption dropped off a cliff so we had a right. dramatic change in consumption so it is actually um, it's it's a difficult one now to know how do you establish a baseline but, I, I yeah. imagine and even for portfolio managers you know it's one thing because actually one thing that I I'm very aware of when we get stats is that if you don't know what to compare them against, it's very difficult to rate your performance. So therefore, you might get the readings, but how much sense will they make to, um, you know, business or to portfolio owners or operators who don't have uh, the insights or maybe the background and knowledge that you have? Do you, does your system prompt recommendations? No, it doesn't prompt recommendations, but certainly what, what we do do is one of the key KPIs would be your energy consumption per square meter building. And that all of a sudden zones you in on, well, which are the buildings in your portfolio that are higher energy consumers and which are lower energy consumers. Um, so okay. I'm, so I suppose it's important to understand that out there in the whole sustainability arena, there's, there's various people. There's people that will invest in your building and to retrofit of LED lights and all of that. That's not our business. There's consultants out there that will advise on energy reduction. Um, that's not our business either. Our business is actually the really tough job of getting the energy meter readings out of the basement in all these different buildings, and they're generally in terrible locations, and into clean, you said that you've um, accurate, consistent, and reliable data streaming into your PC at, on your desk. Um, yeah. Um, Peter, would it be fair to say, I mean, you've kind of touched on it there, some of the things that you don't do. Um, but in terms of the businesses that go in and, and invest in buildings um, and do a retrofit, and it's always with the aim of saving on utilities. So they're effectively become partners in the future savings of utilities. And that's generally done. Um, with the very direct aim, and it has been over the past two decades, it's done with the very direct aim of saving money. It has been less about the, I suppose, the sustainability and um, the environmental impact of the buildings. And that's really a conversation that has come to the fore more so over the past five years, where it's not just cost savings driving this. Actually, sustainability has become a much stronger and more important driver. So how does that change then maybe um, the when the design and build of buildings? You know, when we move away from just looking for cost savings to actual uh, energy sustainability, has that had an impact on the design and build of buildings over the, the recent years? Um, I wouldn't be an expert now on the design of buildings. It's more on the energy consumption within the buildings. Mm. Um, but you're correct in that the, the focus has moved from just the cost savings. So a lot of the cost, the investment initiatives are driven by subsidies and energy credits from um, from supply companies. OK, um, mm. but what we're seeing is I, the, our customers are coming to us because they want to get their building rated. 
And this is really important. They want to get their building rating on, say, the likes of Gresby. And it's because the owners of the building need it rated on Gresby because a more sustainability sustainable building is a more valuable building and that's what's driving yeah. it and it's the investors and this is what i find really interesting it's the investors so it's the pension funds that'll involved in the that get involved in investing in the real estate investment trusts are saying okay we'll invest in your real estate investment trust but only on the basis that you're building sustainable buildings so it's going yeah. right back to the investor and that's what's driving our customers Rather, yeah, and that's a that's a yeah. really positive. That's Absolutely. where you want the market to be driven. Yeah, I I started off in life actually um, two years ago when I set up Ziggy Tech initially with a view to saying, okay, what I want to do is to do some really smart analytics on your data, so that we can help you save money, right? And we went to our clients and we we're saying, this is what we want to do. And they said, geez, that's really great, Peter. I think that's a great idea. Lovely. I'd love to do it. But the only problem is I don't have the data. Yeah. And I said, oh, I see. So that's the problem. The problem is that the very start of the chain, you don't actually have the data. So there's loads of packages out there that will analyze everything and draw lovely graphs. But if you don't have the data, you can't actually do anything. So that's where we started out two years ago getting the data. Now we are building the algorithms on top of that data now to start analyzing it. But we, we really had to start at basics, get the data for the guys. Yeah. Um, so yeah. the reason um, the likes of Gresby um, certification and well certification are so important is they, they, they insist that you measure energy and that you get the data because they know it's a starting point in the sustainability drive. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it's a really important point, though. You know, it's back to that very simple old adage, uh, what gets measured actually can be improved. But if you don't know your starting point, it's very difficult to take corrective action from there. And I suppose um, you're well placed there. I think that's interesting that you came from a place of actually wanting to analyse the data, but then had to go and, and actually organize the collection of that data yourself so what's the i suppose what's the kind of medium term plan for ziggy tech where do you see the next five years going in terms of not just for ziggy tech but actually for for uh sustainable real estate so where i have my vision now for this is if you're a, a property manager a portfolio manager it's not feasible to have uh, energy expert in each one of your buildings you know there's not enough work for them to do in each one of the buildings what i actually see is going to happen is um a portfolio manager is going to have a control center a bit like a security control center but a control center for energy where they're going to be continuously monitoring the energy consumption right across the portfolio and taking corrective action immediately by ringing the property manager and saying i noticed your water has consumption has shot up over the weekend, you must have a leak. And that there are some of the things we're picking out with our software already. Um, commercial buildings should generally don't use water at nighttime or at weekends. And if you start to pick up the water consumption at nighttime at weekends, it indicates that you have a leak. Um, and that, that's where I see the future is you, you're going to, because we can pull all the data together in one place, um, a portfolio manager will employ an energy consultant and a sustainability consultant to monitor their premises continuously all the time, rather than just doing spot checks every once a year or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that you've actually gone into the area as well of um, 
air quality. Now that's a, that's a conversation that's really topical at the moment, um, both for a smart city point of view outside and also for within buildings. Um, and, and this has become even more of an issue post-pandemic, you know, because we obviously need to be much more aware of the, the impact that poor quality air has on anybody with respiratory, underlying respiratory illnesses. So coming from there, what is the air quality offering that you that Ziggy Tech provides? Yeah, well, just to give you a background of the air quality, we started off about two years ago as well when we we're doing utilities and um, we were asked, well, can you do air quality? Because it's a requirement for well certification for a building and um, to say that you measure air. So we said, fine. And that was purely the driver there that you were monitoring air and you could prove that you're monitoring the air. Um, all of, like the world has just changed radically in the last few months where all of a sudden, where uh, up to now, building owners generally didn't need want to monitor their air quality because they didn't really want to be highlighting problems, to, to be quite frank. You know, they didn't need that headache. Um, yeah. Whereas it changed, it's completely changed now. And all of a sudden, employees and tenants are saying, hold on, I need to know that you know, there's a key safety issue to show that there's enough yeah. fresh air in the building. Um, our, our monitors ma- measure, amongst other things, the level of CO2. And obviously, if you have a stuffy building with people breathing out CO2, the CO2 levels will go up. And it's a bad indication. It's a very bad indication for, uh, for air quality within a building. Uh, the trend we've seen in the last few weeks is um, energy consumption starting to rocket back up in buildings because um, tenants are saying, well, we need the air conditioning on 24-7, and, you know, full air exchanges and all of that uh, in order to sure, ensure that the air is safe. Um, I don't think that's not, a, it's kind of going sustainability in the wrong direction. Um, so what they're looking at doing and what they are doing now is saying, well, actually, we need to insert CO2 monitors to prove to the occupants that we are exchanging fresh air in and out of the building all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's what's taken off now. That, that's what's really taken off. And, we, you know, we've all read about the sick building syndrome and all of that, but nobody's necessarily measured it. I think mm-hmm. people will be insisting that there is safe measurement of air quality and the, the safe measurement of air uh, going on in all these buildings and you know most of the buildings are fine but we all know the odd building can be bad yeah well look again when you're dealing with um commercial real estate particularly in a city like dublin you have your mix of new or contemporary buildings but you also have older buildings that either have been retrofitted or need to be retrofit so you know there, there's kind of an added challenge there so i think that this is certainly a, an area that's of growing importance to um landlords and to, to commercial occupiers so i've no doubt that we'll be discussing this with you again um so peter thank you so much for joining me today that was peter murphy co-founder of ziggy tech we need to take another quick break and we'll be back shortly stay tuned 93.9 dublin south fm welcome back to property matters on dublin south fm with myself, Carol Tallon. I'm now joined over the phone from Warsaw and Berlin by Maciej Markowski and Marley Fabyshevitz, co-founders of Space OS. You're both very welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Um, you truly are an international uh, Irish startup. So perhaps you might start by telling us about Space OS. What exactly does Space OS do? 
Who's first, Maciej? You want to go? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy to start too. Everything is in the name. Space OS is space operating system. Uh, we enable um, office building landlords, uh, workspace operators, or flex space uh, operators to to run their spaces. And we're really an end-to-end -end, uh, space management system, uh, really increasing the the occupier experience. Uh, for any kind of workspaces. Okay, I, you know, we talk a lot about, um, you know, we, we cover prop tech and um, commercial prop tech over really the course of the past 18 months here in the show. And, you know, sometimes the standards can, can be quite different. So let's get specific about what it is and what who you offer this to. So in the commercial space, is it mainly offices that you're dealing with? That. <clears throat> Not really specifically. Um, you know, I think what what really um, different what that makes us differentiate from the rest uh, of the competitors in the industry that we really cater to offices, to flex spaces, to co-workings, basically any kind of workspace. And you know, this was also our mission from the beginning that we understood that all workspaces like will require technology to make workspaces more human centric and more connected. Okay, very good. And can you give me some examples of how you're doing that? How do how does that translate into the into the contemporary office space? Well, basically, you know, I mean, it's all about you know getting people connected with the amenities, potentially with the landlord or the workspace operators, and you know, making the things in their daily routines and their daily lives a bit easier. Now, you know, with the past months and the pandemic, you know, other priorities have surfaced, like you know, safety contactless uh, features uh, and things like that. But ultimately moving forward, you know, we think, you know, we're moving into um, decentralization of offices and, you know, the, the work from anywhere kind of um, mindset. And, you know, we strongly understand and believe that this will be only possible if this is managed with technology. And this is, you know, what we have been building and we have been anticipating, you know, for a long time, but it's going to come now with such a vengeance. Uh, you know, nobody knew about it, but we're very excited to be in this. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting one there because there had been a huge trend towards um uh, creating much more appealing office spaces, you know, uh, healthy buildings, uh, workspaces that promoted well-being, you know. So this was a huge focus over the past number of years. And I think it, it's interesting to see that th that a lot of the infrastructure that was put in place, the priorities have indeed changed post-COVID-19 so that, you know, what, what was maybe the aim of well-being is now crossing over into safety and um you know, maybe um, whether it's infrastructure within the office or technology that will actually ensure that there's no risk of spreading the virus. You know, so actually the priorities are very much changed, but the principles are still the underlying ones. Um, but I suppose before we start and get into what exactly they are, we might just um, get from the people that you're working with at the moment, where is your system deployed across how many, uh, across approximately how many buildings and operators? Mm -hmm. So it's now deployed in 16 countries across 18, 80 locations. Uh, this is around 11 million uh, square feet in total. So it's quite, quite widely used already. Okay. And I know that um, of your systems, you know, there's uh, approximately 75 uh, thousand users um, across those 16 countries and 80 locations. 
So you must have some maybe insights that others wouldn't have in re- in relation to uh, this phased return to work. I mean, are you seeing that uh, the 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 offices that you're currently operating in, you know, have they returned to near full capacity? Are they operating at very low levels of capacity at the moment? Well, I, I mean, nobody has returned to full capacity yet, mm. and it's varying from country to country, obviously, you know, uh, with the individual regulations and also, you know, with the state of the pandemic. So I believe we will be transitioning back to the office over the next months, you know, slowly but surely. Um, I think, you know, ultimately, you know, it's really fundamental to ensure the safety of the people and, you know, to also uh, stop the virus spreading. So I think, you know, taking the time and making Oh, I'm sorry. The line has dropped off there. Uh, I'm, I'm deploying, meanwhile, technologies oh, yeah. no, no, like I'm, Space I'm, OS, that's, you know, that's to make the workspace way, safer. I, just want to remind I think our, it's fundamental. Our um, audience at home that we are operating remotely, so apologies for any sound quality issues that we might be experiencing. Um, so look back to back to really what we need to be focusing on now. I think that again there has been a huge trend trend towards um, the tenant experience, and I think maybe what as an industry we were promoting as the optimum tenant experience four months ago is very different today. So for people who are looking at a phased return to their offices, you know how has the whole concept of quality tenant experience changed? I wouldn't say it's changed that the old things don't matter anymore. I think just priorities mm-hmm. changed. Now, number one, it's, it's of course, safety. So if somebody uh, runs an office building, their number one responsibility and number one priority is to make sure that people who come, they'll be safe. So they need to, number one, manage the number of people who are coming, mm-hmm. which is, of course, d- difficult. And that's why we introduced the proactive density management, where you can really make sure that only people who book spaces can can show up. Secondly, anything that can be made contactless, well, it should be. And that's from entrance to, to, to the lifts, to ability to order food in the restaurant downstairs and, and pick it up without queuing. So I think these became very uh, very important and thirdly i mean this was always important but i think now it's it, it it's a key issue it's, it's communication so really being able to uh, communicate the hygiene standards communicate uh with the tenants that they can expect a safe office environment and uh that they can ask any any questions and the best practices can be uh, shared with them so i would say you you still want the main goal of tenant experience was allowing any occupier coming to the building to have ability to do many more things with their phone or with the laptop. And at the same time, to for the landlord to be much better connected to them and provide much better service. I think it only became paramount now because without the communication and ability to enable, uh, to have the technology really orchestrate the return to the office, uh, I think we would be in deep, deep trouble. So any building that already int- introduced that prior to COVID, and we, we had that feedback from many clients, it was actually much easier for them to uh, manage the, the offboarding and, and the onboarding again. Okay. Of people. And that's something actually that we've seen ourselves um, locally, that the experience has been, you know, those that were set up to do it obviously have had a natural advantage. Um, now, 
uh, I, I'm referring, of course, there to, to the tenant experience, but you actually describe Space OS as an operating system for commercial real estate rather than a tenant experience platform. Um, for contemporary offices, what is the distinction? I think, you know, I mean, we all started, you know, with the vision that every building, every office, every workspace will have an app that connects its tenants, its members with the amenities with the landlord. Um, you know, that was the phase of tenant experience. And I think now we understood that we need to create a holistic experience and that required to build a platform that is able to integrate building technologies, hardware like access control, HVAC, also software systems. And this is the area we're moving into. We became a platform with powerful APIs, being able to exchange, synchronize, and harmonize data across various systems. And that's you know where, where the transition is happening right now from a tenant experience app to a platform to really an operating system. And that's, uh, you know, that's what we are becoming. I think also one fundamental thing, what is changing, what we're doing right now is we're moving more into the operational part of the business, um, ultimately really handing the lease processes and allowing uh, landlords to have a full inventory of their offices in space OS and being able to market, sell and manage these. So, you know, we're really managing also all the procurement processes nowadays instead of, you know, just the okay, communication um, so and these just things, to make sure that uh, I understand how it started it because with, obviously you know, we want our, our audience part. to understand it fully as well. Um, in terms of when you talk about procurement, then does that mean that you're getting into the realm of, you know, maybe issue reporting? when there's an issue within the commercial mm -hmm. building so that, you know, that's coming from the tenant experience side. If people experience an issue, they can report it. Um, so your system goes right the way through to addressing that, responding to it, communicating, and then even procuring that where needed. Was, mm -hmm. So I, I would say we go much deeper than that. So we actually enable uh, management of the full occupier uh, life cycle, mm -hmm. which means uh, the CRM, the issuing of offers, managing offers, signing of the uh, leasing contracts, and then automating invoicing. So you can really run your building fully from, from SpaceOS, which is a huge uh, part of our system now, which I wouldn't at all uh, include in, under the tenant experience banner. Th this became actually really, really important uh, since the COVID situation, because more and more landlords uh, consider already doing it to turn part of their space into uh, to flex space to, to, to offer short-term leases. And we enable them to do that very, very easily. So, and another part that I think uh, sets us apart from just purely tenant experience solutions is the platform side of things. So if you want to integrate uh, VMS, if you want to integrate your HVAC systems, if you want to integrate access control, parking, lifts, and have a single command control center and really gather a single pool of data to have an overview of what's happening in your building, well, we enable that. I think that's quite far and from, from just purely a solution that makes being in a building nicer, which is also very important. Mm -hmm. But we believe that that true value can be brought when you uh, take it all together. Yeah, absolutely. And but what you what you what you just said, Carol, if I may uh, just just come back. You know, you you asked for you know support and FM issue management. We had this already from the beginning. I mean, we implemented a very simple support ticketing system in the beginning, which was a chat. And the first time, you know, in history, um, you know. Uh, 
tenants were able to report instantly in a chat interface uh, when they had a problem with, I don't know, the toilet, the light bulb, or the, the AC, right? That was usually not the, not the case. You know, you, a couple of years ago, they still used to send the fax. So, you know, we really moved into this area to have a direct communication. And then we understood very quickly that the facility management systems are usually, you know, quite outdated technology with a very bad user experience. So we have extended this part of issue reporting and facility management on our side and, you know, are basically allowing okay. for full and, end-to-end and just facility before we management came on work on a process I, I was trying to find out the, the ratio or the spread of um, you going into new buildings or whether retrofitting on older buildings. So you indicated there that there's a there's a nice spread. So this is not just technology for newly developed commercial building. You're actually going in and retrofitting um older buildings? We're, we're a cloud-based solution. So, you know, we can deploy anywhere, right? Uh, so for us, there is no restrictions in, in that area. You know, personally, I, I like, you know, industrial revitalized buildings. You know, I actually prefer them uh, over new, completely new buildings uh, these days because, you know, they have something special, they have a history and, you know, they just create a different vibe and atmosphere. But, you know, ultimately we're totally flexible. I mean, usually it's not about us, but the technologies around us which have to be retrofitted, like, you know, access control or modern HVAC system, which can communicate with our system through an API, because, you know, unfortunately, this is still not standard in the industry. Yeah. Okay. That all these uh, building that's, technologies that's, do have an API um, and are able to communicate. Space, this sector of, uh, of prop tech, it's one that is maturing fast. So, I mean, where, where next for Space OS, you know, over the next 12 months? And I understand that's a difficult situation. That's a difficult question to ask. In the in light of the fact that we don't really know the full impact of the pandemic and how that's going to shape future use, but from where we are today, how do you see this space advancing? So I, you know, I mean, literally the world changed in a couple of days over the last months, right? Uh, however, it's going to take time until we, you know, really see the change because ultimately, what will be happening? I think you know, big offices will be decentralized. You know, people will be working from anywhere, but this still has to happen. You know, it's not gonna. It's not going to be happening over a couple of days. This will be happening over the next years to come. And, you know, same applies, obviously, for the technology implementation. I think, you know, the need is ultimately there. And I think, you know, for us, it's, it's you know, it's been really a positive momentum where, you know, our message, our vision suddenly was, was put on fast forward over the past week. And right now, everybody understands that without such technologies, they won't be able to compete in the future in the market. But, you know, we're just excited that we can help and uh, that we can help make, you know, uh, offices and workspaces more safe, more efficient, and more collaborative and more human centric. And uh, that's, that's how I think is the biggest value we are bringing today. And that oh, makes th us the most th that's a really important one. I, I'm on sorry, this, Marley, did you uh, want to come topic. in there? Uh, Matrix. Oh, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I wanted to uh, add um, one thing. So, regarding mm -hmm. the next 12 months, I'm, I'm seeing three things, right? Mm -hmm. Number one, I believe uh, this field will continue growing, that solutions like ours will become table stakes for the industry. J just even from the occupier experience point of view, it's why is it harder to order food from restaurant downstairs than from across town? Why is it harder to report an issue in your own building than a broken package from, from Amazon, right? So I think this really will become a standard, like the lead certificate became standard some time ago. Mm. So th th that's one. Number two, uh, I believe a lot that will happen in the next 12 months will, of course, 
relate to, to, to COVID. Our whole roadmap was uh, significantly amended to enable integration of air quality sensors, uh, desk booking, proactive um, occupier management to enable uh, even uh, things like uh, contact tracing. Exactly, thanks. Uh, so density, so density that, management and occupancy management. Uh, I also think for, for this space uh, that short demand for short-term leases will really, really change this industry. And I think uh, this is strongly estimated now. I think a lot of co-working players are struggling right now because, of course, they have the shortest leases. Mm -hmm. But I think long-term, uh, there will be a huge, huge demand for, for flexibility. And I think it will be very hard to manage for any office building without uh, a solution uh, like, like SpaceOS. Plenty to think about there. Maciej and Marley, my thanks again for joining us today to talk about SpaceOS. That's it from us today. Thank you for listening into Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on Twitter at iProperty Radio or by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Also, my thanks to Peter Rice on Sound and show producer Katie Tallon of Hear Me Roar Media. We're back at the same time next week. From myself, Carol Tallon and all the team here, stay safe. Three, 